You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral, and you can go to YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. There you'll find all the back episodes. You'll find a link to send me a message. You'll also find a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. Capitalism kills. One of the ways that capitalism kills is because it, it creates a drive in corporations to lie. When telling the truth will potentially risk or reduce profits because profits are the most important thing to companies in a capitalist system. Anything that creates a risk to the potential to profit is a negative thing and should be hidden, denied, disputed, propagandized against, etc. And all of these tendencies create time after time after time that industries will hide research that show that the products that they are creating, that they are marketing, that they are selling, that they are profiting off of are harmful to our health. It happens again and again and again. And this episode is going to tell a few of those stories. But first, Here's Hector McDonald. This is published at businessinsider.com and congratulations to the striking workers and writers at Business Insider for winning the concessions in their recent strike. Hello, I'm Hector McDonald. I'm a business storytelling expert and a strategic communications consultant. And I'm the author of Truth how the many sides of every story shape our reality. So when a company is trying to shape its narrative, one of the first things it has to ask itself is which of the many things it could say, should it say? There's a thousand different things any company can put into a story about its past, its present, its future. But really, the skill of the storyteller in business is to hone down from all those multiple different truths to the key things that you think will achieve the purpose, achieve the agenda you're trying to work towards in that business. We have all kinds of tricks up our sleeve as professional communicators, and some of them are honest. Some of them are a little bit less honest in their application. The simplest methodology, of course, is just choosing what you include in your messaging. So omission is a simple technique to make sure that you leave out the uncomfortable truths of things that will perhaps cause difficulties for some of your employees, cause embarrassment in the markets for your customers, and so on. And that's a very wise and sensible approach in a lot of cases where there are things that are best not said. I think whatever the wider world may think, most businesses and most other organizations are genuinely trying to do useful work create value for society, create value for their shareholders, ding, 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 of course, and this is a tough world we're working in. All kinds of industries are struggling to make it through. The competition, the rapidly changing technological environment, regulatory changes, if it's banking, and so on. So there's a huge amount of very difficult work that has to be done. And using clever forms of communication, artful versions of the truth in order to advance those goals, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's a very positive procedure. It's a very constructive thing to do if it means that you're increasing the value of that organization, you're saving jobs, you're creating jobs. 
So there's a very utilitarian argument for a lot of this. And so it goes. Here's a piece published at cbsnews.com. Big Tobacco Kept Cancer Risks in Cigarettes Secret. This is written by Ryan Jaslow. Has Big Tobacco been holding out on its customers? New research suggests that tobacco companies have known for 40 years that cigarette smoke contains cancer-causing particles, but deliberately hid the information from the public. For the study published in the September 27 issue of Nicotine and Tobacco Research, UCLA researchers examined dozens of internal tobacco industry documents made public after a 1998 court case and found tobacco companies had known cigarette smoke contained potentially dangerous radioactive particles as early as 1959. Quote, They knew that the cigarette smoke was radioactive way back then and that it could potentially result in cancer, and they deliberately kept that information under wraps. Study author Dr. Hrer S. Korgosian professor of cardiology at UCLA's Cardiovascular Research Laboratory said in a written statement. We show here that industry used misleading statements to obfuscate the hazard of ionizing alpha particles to the lungs of smokers and, more importantly, banned any and all publication on tobacco smoke radioactivity. The radioactive particle in question, polonium-210, is found in all commercially available cigarettes and inhaled directly into a smoker's lungs, the research said. Their study outlines how the tobacco industry was also concerned by the particle and even studied the potential lung damage from radiation exposure. The UCLA researchers examined this potential risk on their own and found the radioactive particles could cause between 120 and 140 deaths for every 1,000 smokers over a 25-year period. We used to think that only the chemicals in the cigarettes were causing lung cancer, Cargosian said, but the new research suggests these radioactive particles are targeting hot spots in the lungs to cause cancer. The researchers said that tobacco companies could have removed this radiation through techniques discovered decades ago, but chose not to. The industry had previously said that these techniques might be costly and dangerous for the environment, according to Karagosian, but he found a different reason during his research. He said the tobacco industry was concerned the techniques would make nicotine more difficult to be absorbed by smokers' brains, depriving them of the addictive nicotine rush. What does big tobacco have to say? And I must digress for a moment here, because we're about to hear from big tobacco. The same folks who knew about this hid it, buried it, forbid it from being published, have a vested interest in not having you believe the facts about it. But let's hear what Big Tobacco has to say. David Sutton, a spokesperson for Philip Morris USA, told ABC News that the public health community has known about this particle for some time. Polonium-210, let me put my voice on. Polonium-210 is a naturally occurring element found in air, soil, and water, and therefore can be found in plants, including tobacco, he said. The researchers are calling on the FDA to step in. In 2009, the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act was passed. That gives the agency powers to remove harmful substances, with the exception of nicotine, from tobacco. Karagosian said in a statement that these particles fit the bill. Said Karagosian. Such a move could have a considerable public health impact due to the public's graphic perception of radiation hazards. And that, of course, is just one of many, many things that the uh, tobacco industry hid from the public to maintain their profits, to continue to sell their product, uh, despite the fact that they knew it was causing direct harm to their customers. Next up is a piece published at MotherJones.com, written by Gary Tobes and Kristen Kearns Cousins. On a brisk spring Tuesday in 1976, a pair of executives from the Sugar Association stepped up to the podium of a Chicago ballroom 
to accept the Oscar of the Public Relations World, the Silver Anvil Award for Excellence in, quote, the forging of public opinion. The trade group had recently pulled off one of the greatest turnarounds in PR history. For nearly a decade, the sugar industry had been buffeted by crisis after crisis as the media and the public soured on sugar and scientists began to view it as a likely cause of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. Industry ads claiming that eating sugar helped you lose weight had been called out by the Federal Trade Commission and the Food and Drug Administration had launched a review of whether sugar was even safe to eat. Consumption had declined 12% in just two years, and producers could see where that trend might lead. As John J.W. Tatum Jr. and Jack O'Connell Jr., the Sugar Association's president and director of public relations, posed that day with their trophies, their smiles only hinted at the coup they had just pulled off. Their winning campaign, crafted with the help of the prestigious public relations firm Carl Bjor & Associates, had been prompted by a poll showing that consumers had come to see sugar as fattening and that most doctors suspected it might exacerbate, if not cause, heart disease and diabetes. With an initial annual budget of nearly $800,000, equivalent of $3.4 million today, collected from the makers of Dixie Crystals, Domino, C&H, Great Western, and other sugar brands, the association recruited a stable of medical and nutritional professionals to allay the public's fears, brought snack and beverage companies into the fold, and bankrolled scientific papers that contributed to a, quote, highly supportive FDA ruling, which the Silver Anvil application boasted made it, quote, unlikely that sugar will be subject to legislative restriction in coming years. The story of sugar, as Tatum told it, was one of a harmless product under attack by, quote, opportunists dedicated to exploiting the consuming public. <laughs> that, that could probably uh, describe the industry right there. Over the subsequent decades, it would be transformed from what the New York Times in 1977 had deemed a villain in disguise into a nutrient so seemingly innocuous that even the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association approved it as part of a healthy diet. Research on the suspected links between sugar and chronic disease largely ground to a halt by the late 1980s, and scientists came to view such pursuits as a career dead end. So effective were the Sugar Association's efforts that to this day, no consensus exists about sugar's potential dangers. The industry's PR campaign corresponded roughly with a significant rise in Americans' consumption of, quote, caloric sweeteners, including table sugar, sucrose, and high-fructose corn syrup, HFCS. This increase was accompanied in turn by a surge in the chronic diseases increasingly linked to sugar. Since 1970, obesity rates in the United States have more than doubled, while the incidence of diabetes has more than tripled. Precisely how did the sugar industry engineer this turnaround? The answer is found in more than 1,500 pages of internal memos, letters, and company board reports we discovered buried in the archives of now-defunct sugar companies, as well as in the recently released papers of deceased researchers and consultants who played key roles in the industry's strategy. They show how Big Sugar used big tobacco-style tactics to ensure that government agencies would dismiss troubling health claims against their products. Compared to the tobacco companies, which knew for a fact that their wares were deadly and spent billions of dollars trying to cover up that reality, the sugar industry had a relatively easy task. With the jury still out on sugar's health effects, producers simply needed to make sure that the uncertainty lingered. But the goal was the same, to safeguard sales by creating a body of evidence companies could deploy to counter any unfavorable research. This decades-long effort to stack the scientific deck is why today the USDA's dietary guidelines only speak of sugar in vague generalities. Quote, reduce the intake of calories from solid fats and added sugars. It's why the FDA insists that sugar is, quote, 
generally recognized as safe, despite considerable evidence suggesting otherwise. It's why some scientists' urgent calls for regulation of sugary products have been dead on arrival. And it's why, absent any federal leadership, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg felt compelled to propose a ban on oversized sugary drinks that passed in September. In fact, a growing body of research suggests that sugar and its nearly chemically identical cousin, HFCS, may very well cause diseases that kill hundreds of thousands of Americans every year, and that these chronic conditions will be far less prevalent if we significantly dialed back our consumption of added sugars. Robert Lustig, a leading authority on pediatric obesity at the University of California, San Francisco, whose arguments Gary explored in a 2011 New York Times Magazine cover story, made the case last February in the prestigious journal Nature. In an article titled The Toxic Truth About Sugar, Lustig and two colleagues observed that sucrose and HFCS are addictive in much the same way as cigarettes and alcohol and that overconsumption of them is driving worldwide epidemics of obesity and type 2 diabetes, the type associated with obesity. Sugar-related diseases are costing America around $150 billion a year, the authors estimated, so federal health officials need to step up and consider regulating the stuff. The Sugar Association dusted off what has become its stock response. The Lustig paper had said, quote, lacks the scientific evidence or consensus to support its claims, and its authors were irresponsible not to point out that the full body of science, quote, is inconclusive at best. This inconclusiveness, of course, is precisely what the Sugar Association has worked so assiduously to maintain. In confronting our critics, Tatum explained to his board of directors back in 1976, we try never to lose sight of the fact that no confirmed scientific evidence links sugar to the death-dealing diseases. This crucial point is the lifeblood of the association. The Sugar Association's earliest incarnation dates back to 1943, when growers and refiners created the Sugar Research Foundation to counter World War II sugar rationing propaganda. How much sugar do you need? None, declared one government pamphlet. In 1947, producers rechristened their group the Sugar Association and launched a new PR division, Sugar Information Inc., which before long was touting sugar as a, quote, sensible new approach to weight control. In 1968, in the hope of enlisting foreign sugar companies to help defray the costs, the Sugar Association spun off its research division as the International Sugar Research Foundation. Quote, Misconceptions concerning the causes of tooth decay, diabetes, and heart problems exist on a worldwide basis, explained a 1969 ISRF recruiting brochure. As early as 1962, internal Sugar Association memos had acknowledged the potential links between sugar and chronic diseases, but at the time, sugar executives had a more pressing problem. Weight-conscious Americans were switching in droves to diet sodas, particularly Diet Right and Tab, sweetened with cyclamate and saccharin. From 1963 through 1968, diet soda's share of the soft drink market shot from 4% to 15%. Quote, a dollar's worth of sugar, ISRF Vice President and Research Director John Hickson warned in an internal review, could be replaced with a dime's worth of sugar alternatives. If anyone can undersell you nine cents out of ten, Hickson told the New York Times in 1969, you'd better find some brickbat you can throw at him. By then, the sugar industry had doled out more than $600,000, about $4 million in today's dollars, to study every conceivable harmful effect of cyclamate sweeteners, which are still sold around the world under names like Sugar Twin and Sucaril. In 1969, the FDA banned cyclamates in the United States based on a study suggesting they could cause bladder cancer in rats. Not long after Hickson left the ISRF to work for the Cigar Research Council, he was described in a confidential tobacco industry memo as a, quote, supreme scientific politician who has been successful in condemning cyclamates 
on behalf of the sugar industry on somewhat shaky evidence. It later emerged that the evidence suggesting that cyclamates cause cancer in rodents was not relevant to humans, but by then, the case was officially closed. In 1977, saccharin-2 was nearly banned on the basis of animal results that would turn out to be meaningless in people. Meanwhile, researchers had been reporting that blood lipids, cholesterol and triglycerides in particular, were a risk factor in heart disease. Some people had high cholesterol, but normal triglycerides, prompting health experts to recommend that they avoid animal fats. Other people were deemed carbohydrate-sensitive, with normal cholesterol but markedly increased triglyceride levels. In these individuals, even moderate sugar consumption could cause a spike in triglycerides. John Yudkin, the United Kingdom's leading nutritionist, was making headlines with claims that sugar, not fat, was the primary cause of heart disease. In 1967, the Sugar Association's research division began considering, quote, the rising tide of implications of sucrose in atherosclerosis. Before long, according to a confidential 1970 review of industry-funded studies, the newly formed ISRF was spending 10% of its research budget on the link between diet and heart disease. Hickson, the ISRF's vice president, urged his member corporations to keep the results of the review under wraps. Of particular concern was the work of a University of Pennsylvania researcher on sucrose sensitivity, which sugar executives feared was, quote, likely to reveal evidence of harmful effects. One ISRF consultant recommended that sugar companies get to the truth of the matter by sponsoring a full-on study. In what would become a pattern, the ISRF opted not to follow his advice. Another ISRF-sponsored study by biochemist Walter Pover of the University of Birmingham in England had uncovered a possible mechanism to explain how sugar raises triglyceride levels. Pover believed he was on the verge of demonstrating this mechanism conclusively and that 18 more weeks of work would nail it down. But instead of providing the funds, the ISRF nixed the project, assessing its value as nil. The industry followed a similar strategy when it came to diabetes. By 1973, links between sugar, diabetes, and heart disease were sufficiently troubling that Senator George McGovern of South Dakota convened a hearing of his Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs to address the issue. An internal panel of experts, including Yudkin and Walter Mertz, head of the Human Nutrition Institute at the Department of Agriculture, testified that variations in sugar consumption were the best explanation for the differences in diabetes rates between populations, and that research by the USDA and others supported the notion that eating too much sugar promotes dramatic population-wide increases in the disease. One panelist, South African diabetes specialist George Campbell, suggested that anything more than 70 pounds per person per year, about half of what is sold in America today, would spark epidemics. In the face of such hostile news from independent scientists, the ISRF hosted its own conference the following March, focusing exclusively on the work of researchers who were skeptical of a sugar-diabetes connection. All those present agreed that a large amount of research is still necessary before a firm conclusion can be arrived at, according to a conference review published in a prominent diabetes journal. In 1975, the foundation reconvened in Montreal to discuss research priorities with its consulting scientists. Sales were sinking. Tatum reminded the gathered sugar execs. And a major factor was, quote, the impact of consumer advocates who link sugar consumption with certain diseases. Following the Montreal conference, the ISRF disseminated a memo quoting Errol Marlis, University of Toronto diabetes specialist, recommending that the industry pursue well-designed research programs to establish sugar's role in the course of diabetes and other diseases. Such research programs might produce an answer that sucrose is bad in certain individuals, he warned, but the studies should be undertaken in a sufficiently comprehensive way as to produce results. A gesture rather than full support is unlikely to produce the sought-after answers. A gesture, however, is what the industry 
would offer. Yeah, because their sought-after answers were to muddy the waters and to make things less clear and to have deniability of the connection. Rather than approve a serious investigation of the purported links between sucrose and disease, American sugar companies quit supporting the ISRF's research projects. Instead, via the Sugar Association proper, they would spend roughly $655,000 between 1975 and 1980 on 17 studies designed, as internal documents put it, quote, to maintain research as a main prop of the industry's defense. Each proposal was vetted by a panel of industry-friendly scientists and a second committee staffed by the representatives from sugar companies and contributing research members such as Coca-Cola, Hershey's, General Mills, and Nabisco. Most of the cash was awarded to researchers whose studies seemed explicitly designed to exonerate sugar. One even proposed to explore whether sugar could be shown to boost serotonin levels in rats' brains and thus, quote, prove of therapeutic value as in the relief of depression, an internal document noted. At best, the study seemed a token effort. Harvard Medical School professor Ron Arkey, for example, received money from the Sugar Association to determine whether sucrose has a different effect on blood sugar and other diabetes indicators if eaten alongside complex carbohydrates like pectin and psyllium. The project went nowhere, Arkey told us recently, but the Sugar Association didn't care. In short, rather than do definitive research to learn the truth about its product, good or bad, the association stuck to a PR scheme designed to establish with the broadest possible audience, virtually everyone is a consumer, the safety of sugar as food. One of its first acts was to establish a Food and Nutrition Advisory Council, consisting of half a dozen physicians and two dentists willing to defend sugar's place in a healthy diet. It set aside roughly $60,000 per year, more than $220,000 today, to cover its cost. Working to the industry's recruiting advantage was a rising notion that cholesterol and dietary fat, especially saturated fat, were the likely causes of heart disease. Tatum even suggested in a letter to the Times magazine that some sugar critics were motivated merely by wanting to keep the heat off saturated fats. This was the brainchild of nutritionist Ansel Keys, who, whose University of Minnesota laboratory had received financial support from the sugar industry as early as 1944. From the 1950s through the 1980s, Keyes remained the most outspoken proponent of the fat hypothesis, often clashing publicly with Yudkin, the most vocal supporter of the sugar hypothesis. The two men shared a good deal of loathing, recalled one of Yudkin's colleagues. So when the Sugar Association needed a heart disease expert for its Food and Nutrition Advisory Council, it approached Francisco Grand, one of Keyes' closest colleagues. Another panelist was University of Oregon nutritionist William Connor, the leading purveyor of the notion that it is dietary cholesterol that causes heart disease. As its top diabetes expert, the industry recruited Edwin Bierman of the University of Washington, who believed that diabetics need not pay strict attention to their sugar intake so long as they maintained a healthy weight by burning off the calories they consumed. Bierman also professed an apparently unconditional faith that it was dietary fat and being fat that caused heart disease, with sugar having no meaningful effect. The first act of the Food and Nutrition Advisory Council was to compile Sugar in the Diet of Man, an 88-page white paper edited by Stair and published in 1975 to, quote, organize existing scientific facts concerning sugar was a compilation of historical evidence and arguments that sugar companies could use to counter the claims of Yudkin, Stair's Harvard colleague, Jean Mayer, and other researchers whom Tatum called enemies of sugar. The document was sent to reporters. The Sugar Association circulated 25,000 copies, along with the press release headlined, Scientists Dispel Sugar Fears. The report neglected to mention that it was funded by the sugar industry but internal documents confirm that it was. While Stair and his colleagues had been drafting Sugar in the Diet of Man, the FDA was launching its first review 
of whether sugar was, in the official jargon, generally recognized as safe or gras. Part of a series of food additive reviews the Nixon administration had requested of the agency. The FDA subcontracted the task to the Federation of American Societies of Experimental Biology, which created an 11-member committee to vet hundreds of food additives from acacia to zinc sulfate. While the mission of the GRASS committee was to conduct unbiased reviews of the existing science for each additive, it was led by biochemist George W. Irving, Jr., who had previously served two years as chairman of the Scientific Advisory Board of the International Sugar Research Foundation. Industry documents show that another committee member, Samuel Fulman, had received sugar industry funding for three of the five years prior to the sugar review. The FDA's instructions were clear. To label a substance as a potential health hazard, there had to be, quote, credible evidence of or reasonable grounds to suspect adverse biological effects, which certainly existed for sugar at the time. But the Grass Committee's review would depend heavily on sugar in the diet of man and other work by its authors. In the section on heart disease, committee members cited 14 studies whose results were conflicting, but six of those bore industry fingerprints, including Francisco Grand's chapter from Sugar in the Diet of Man and five others that came from Grand's lab or were otherwise funded by the sugar industry. The diabetes chapter of the review acknowledged studies suggesting that long-term consumption of sucrose can result in a functional change in the capacity to metabolize carbohydrates and thus lead to diabetes mellitus. But it went on to cite five reports contradicting that notion. All had industry ties, and three were authored by Ed Bierman, including his chapter in Sugar in the Diet of Man. In January 1976, the Grass Committee published its preliminary conclusions, noting that while sugar probably contributed to tooth decay, it was not a, quote, hazard to the public. The draft review dismissed the diabetes link as circumstantial and called the connection to cardiovascular disease less than clear, with fat playing a greater role. The only cautionary note, besides cavities, was that all bets were off if sugar consumption were to increase significantly. The committee then thanked the Sugar Association for contributing, quote, information and data. And this article goes on to describe how the sugar industry influenced the USDA dietary guidelines, indicating that essentially sugar is not harmful and more. In recent years, the scientific tide has begun to turn against sugar. Despite the industry's best efforts, researchers and public health authorities have come to accept that the primary risk factor for both heart disease and type 2 diabetes is a condition called metabolic syndrome, which now affects more than 75 million Americans, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Metabolic syndrome is characterized by a cluster of abnormalities, some of which Yudkin and others associated with sugars almost 50 years ago, including weight gain, increased insulin levels, and elevated triglycerides. It also has been linked to cancer and Alzheimer's disease. Scientists have now established causation, Lustig said recently. Sugar causes metabolic syndrome. Newer studies from the University of California, Davis, have even reported that LDL cholesterol, the classic risk factor for heart disease, can be raised significantly in just two weeks by drinking sugary beverages at a rate well within the upper range of what Americans consume. Four 12-ounce glasses a day of beverages like soda, Snapple, or Red Bull. The result is a new wave of researchers coming out publicly against big sugar. Like the tobacco industry before it, the sugar industry may be facing the inexorable exposure of its product as a killer. Science will ultimately settle the matter one way or the other. But as big tobacco learned a long time ago, even the inexorable can be held up for a very long time. Back in the 80s or early 90s, uh, Sheldon Rampton and John Stauber wrote a couple of books. 
One was called Trust Us, We're Experts, about how corporations hire experts and quote-unquote experts to testify and to do studies and to publicly tow the company's corporation's line and skew the understanding of risks associated with the company's products. The other book that they wrote was Toxic Sludge is Good for You, Lies, Damn Lies, and the PR Industry. Here's an excerpt from a chapter of that book. This is the opening of The Sludge Hits the Fan. The major public acceptance barrier which surfaced in all the case studies is the widely held perception of sewage sludge as malodorous, disease-causing, or otherwise repulsive. There is an irrational component to public attitudes about sludge, which means that public education will not be entirely successful. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, 1981 Public Relations Document. The German politician Otto von Bismarck once said that those who love sausage and the law should never watch either being made. Something similar might be said about the process we've gone through in writing this book. Take, for example, our title. We knew we wanted to write an expose of the PR industry. But our publisher felt that using public relations in the title would put people right to sleep. His advertising timeline required that we furnish a title before the manuscript was actually finished. We went through weeks of constant brainstorming in search of a title that would say public relations without actually using those words. We searched dictionaries for interesting phrases and badgered friends to ask how they felt about titles such as The Hidden Manipulators, Flack Attack, Sound Bites Back, or The Selling of the Public Mind. We seriously considered lifting the title from Arnold Schwarzenegger's 1994 film True Lies or from J. Edgar Hoover's classic 1950s anti-communist diatribe, Masters of Deceit. Our final title was borrowed from the Tom Tomorrow cartoon, reprinted in Chapter 1. We tried it on a friend who thought, Toxic sludge is good for you. Sounded too weird to be taken seriously. But our publisher felt it would stick in people's heads and make the book easier to market. In the end, therefore, our decision boiled down to commercial calculations. We weren't planning to write about toxic sludge per se. We were trying to reach so-called Generation X readers with a Generation X title, a cynical, exaggerated parody of deceptive public relations. Then Nancy Blatt called, and we discovered that our parody is no exaggeration. Nancy Blatt is an aggressively perky woman who serves as Director of Public Information for the Water Environment Federation, WEF. She phoned to say that she had seen an advance notice mentioning our book, and she was concerned that the title might interfere with the Federation's plans to transform the image of sewage sludge. It's not toxic, she said, and we're launching a campaign to get people to stop calling it sludge. We call it biosolids. It can be used beneficially to fertilize farm fields, and we see nothing wrong with that. We've got a lot of work ahead to educate the public on the value of biosolids. Blatt didn't think the title of our book would be helpful to her cause. Why don't you change it to Smoking is Good for You, she suggested. That's a great title. People will pick it up. I think it has more impact. You can focus it on all on the Philip Morris money. I think it's a grabber. We thanked her for the suggestion, but explained that we don't want our book to be confused with Christopher Buckley's hilarious satire of the PR industry, titled Thank You for Smoking. Blatt took pains to insist, I am not a flack for an interest that I don't believe in personally. She said she shared our dim view of PR representatives working to promote tobacco and other harmful products. She said the Water Environment Federation works to promote recycling by applying the nutrients in sewage waste as fertilizer to farm fields, a natural process that returns organic matter to the soil and keeps it from polluting water supplies. 
We were concerned that you might have heard some negative things about the campaign planned by our PR firm, Powell Tate, Blatt said. That caught our attention. Powell Tate is a blue-chip, Washington-based PR lobby firm that specializes in public relations around controversial high-tech safety and health issues with clients from the tobacco, pharmaceutical, electronics, and airlines industries. Jody Powell was President Jimmy Carter's press secretary and confidant. Sheila Tate similarly served Vice President George Bush and First Lady Nancy Reagan. Tate is also the chairperson of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Realizing we might be on to something, we asked Nancy Blatt to send more information about the Water Environment Federation. She dutifully mailed a glossy brochure and some other promotional materials, along with a letter reiterating her concern that her book might do a disservice to the public and the environment. Her cooperation quickly turned to stonewalling, however, when we requested strategy documents, memos, opinion surveys, and other materials from Powell Tate. Legally, we are entitled to these documents since the Water Environment Federation is partially funded at taxpayer expense. WEF's refusal to voluntarily produce them forced us to file a Freedom of Information Act request with the federal government. As this book goes to press, the EPA is still stalling on our information request. Our investigation into the PR campaign for, quote, beneficial use of sewage sludge revealed a murky tangle of corporate and government bureaucracies, conflicts of interest, and a cover-up of massive hazards to the environment and human health. The trail began with the Water Environment Federation, formerly known as the Federation of Sewage Works Associations, and led finally to Hugh Kaufman, the legendary whistleblower at the Hazardous Site Control Division of the Environmental Protection Agency. In the 80s, Kaufman refused to remain silent about the collaboration between EPA officials and leaders of the industries they were supposed to regulate. His courageous testimony exposed the agency's failure to deal with mounting chemical wastes and brought down Ann Burford, President Reagan's EPA administrator. His active protest resulted in a secret campaign to track his whereabouts and find evidence to fire him, report Myron Peretz Glazier and Panina Migdal Glazier in their 1989 book, The Whistleblowers. The EPA's inspector general became implicated in this scheme. Silencing Kaufman became official policy, even if it meant invading his privacy and the futile hope of uncovering some personal indiscretion. Kaufman gained national prominence and became a symbol of an employee who refused to be cowed by an oppressive bureaucracy. Today, Kaufman is attempting to raise a similar alarm about the so-called beneficial use of sewage sludge, a boondoggle he refers to as Sludgegate, the mother load of toxic waste. And this chapter goes on for 2022 pages or more. Uh, discussing some of the issues with chemicals, with pathogens that make sewage sludge not appropriate for spreading on farmland, despite all the efforts, successful efforts, of all the PR flax from the uh, Water Environment Federation and others to make it happen. And happen it did. And uh, we are feeling the impacts of that today with farms having to shut down due to contamination with toxic substances such as PFAS. There were some articles on that back in episode 77, PFAS, Who Will Pay in the End, and episode 78, PFAS and Capitalism Cause Cancer, of You Can't Be Neutral. Here's the, the tail end of this chapter. As horror stories like these have begun to leak out, advocates of sludge farming are responding. There is no doubt among sludge scientists in general that their long and arduous efforts to convince society of the safety of sludge have been set back a few years, wrote Jean Logsdon in Biocycle magazine. One good effect is that it should become easier to get funds to mount education programs. Logsdon advocated funding a roadshow 
starring scientist advocates like Terry Logan and a star-studded supporting cast of wastewater treatment plant operators. Put another way, this is a job for a creative advertising agency. If the nuclear industry can convince the public that nuclear energy means clear air, then improving the image of sludge would be, pardon the pun, a piece of cake. As we go to press, the biosolids PR blitz is picking up steam. The Water Environment Federation met in July 1995 to examine the public debate on biosolids recycling in all parts of North America, critique local media footage, share special strategies, tactics, and materials developed for targeting specific audiences, and analyze their region's successes and failures. Sludge Newsletter reported that Charlotte Newton of Powell Tate PR, whose firm has received EPA tax dollars to push sludge farming, advocated getting tough with opponents. Attack them in a way that does not demonize them. You can't play to those who act weirdest, she recommended. One measure of the success of the WEF's biosolids public acceptance campaign is that major food companies and associations are reversing their long-standing opposition to sewage sludge. Until recently, for instance, the National Food Processors Association, the main lobby group representing the food industry, with members such as Del Monte, Heinz, and Nestle, strongly opposed accepting and selling sludge-grown fruits and vegetables. In the wake of the PR blitz from WEF and EPA, that opposition is waning. In 1992, the tomato and ketchup conglomerate Heinz responded to a consumer inquiry about sludge by writing, quote, Heinz Company feels the risk of utilizing municipal sludge, which is known to be high in heavy metals such as cadmium and lead, is not a health risk which we need to take. Root crops such as potatoes, carrots, and other vegetables, which are grown under the ground, can take up unacceptable high levels of heavy metals. It should be noted that once the lead levels are present in the soil, they stay there for an indefinite period of time. We have at times dropped suppliers who have used the municipal sludge on their cropland. In 1995, however, a Heinz representative said they were reconsidering their policy. Other companies are following suit. Chris Myers, a PR representative for the huge Del Monte company, explained that his company's long-standing position to avoid using raw agricultural products grown on soils treated with municipal sludge was likely to change. The EPA has asked the National Academy of Sciences to conduct an extensive study of the outstanding safety issues. Del Monte is an active supporter of this study, which we hope will facilitate sludge use in the future. Once biosolids are accepted as crop fertilizer, the powerful National Food Processors Association lobby will strongly oppose any labeling of food grown on sludge land, according to NFPA representative Rick Jarman. Consumers don't need to know whether their food has been grown in sludge. And so we don't know, because there's no labeling. And people, young farmers, are buying farms where they don't know that sludge has been spread in the past. And those farmlands are contaminated. And those farmlands in the water on those farms has PFAS far exceeding safety standards that are out there. And so it goes. Next up, from Big Sludge to Big Auto. This piece is by Beth Gardner and is published at TheGuardian.com. John German had not been looking to make a splash when he commissioned an examination of pollution from diesel cars back in 2013. The exam compared what came out of their exhaust pipes during the lab tests that were required by law with emissions on the road under real driving conditions. German and his colleagues at the International Council on Clean Transportation, ICCT, in the U.S., just wanted to tie up the last loose ends in a big report and thought the research would give them something positive to say about diesel. They might even be able to offer tips to Europe from the U.S.'s experience in getting the dirty fuel to run a little cleaner. But that was not how it turned out. They chose the Volkswagen Jetta as their first test subject, and a VW Passat next. 
Regulators in California agreed to do the routine certification test for them. The council hired researchers from West Virginia University to then drive the same cars through cities, along highways, and into the mountains using equipment that tests emissions straight from the car's exhausts. It was clear right away that something was off. At first, German wondered if the cars might be malfunctioning, and he asked if a dashboard light had come on. That didn't really make sense, though. The cars had just passed the California regulator's test. His partners thought there might be a problem with their equipment, and they recalibrated it again and again. But the results didn't change. Nitrogen oxide NOx pollution from the Jetta's tailpipe was 15 times the allowed limit, shooting up to 35 times under some conditions. The Passat varied between 5 and 20 times the limit. German had been around the auto industry all his life, so he had a pretty good idea what was going on. This had to be a defeat device, a deliberate effort to evade the rules. It was just so outrageous. If they were like three to five times the standards, you could say, oh, maybe they're having much higher NOx emissions because of the high loads or some other external factor. But when it's 15 to 30 times the standards, there's no other explanation, he says. It's a malfunction or it's a defeat device. There's nothing else that could possibly get anywhere close. German wasn't ready to level such a serious accusation against a huge company such as Volkswagen, so he kept quiet while the research moved forward. Much later, his boss was surprised to learn how early he had suspected the truth. He said, you knew there was a defeat device? Why didn't you tell me? The answer was simple. We're an $8 million organization. VW could have squashed us like a bug. German and his colleagues pressed ahead with their work, and when the study was finished, they posted it online. That was May 2014. He was still nervous, so the council didn't issue a press release, nor did the report name the manufacturer. As a courtesy, he sent a copy to someone he knew at Volkswagen, noting, by the way, vehicles A and B are yours. German's group also forwarded the findings to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and California's Air Resource Board, CARB. We were definitely scared. We wanted EPA and CARB to take over. After the results were posted, he would email the agencies now and then. No one replied, and having spent more than 13 years at the EPA himself, he knew what that meant. The regulators were investigating, and while they struggled to determine what was causing the discrepancy between pollution in the lab and on the road, Volkswagen executives quietly debated their next move. After months of foot-dragging, Volkswagen promised to remedy the problem, which it blamed on a technical glitch. It began recalling cars, updating the software in hundreds of thousands of them. Months later, California ran new tests. Emissions were still far over the limit. Now regulators wanted to see the software controlling the vehicle's pollution systems, and they made an extraordinary threat to get it. If Volkswagen did not turn over the code, it would not get the approvals it needed to sell cars in California and a dozen states that used its standards. The EPA threatened to withhold certification for the entire U.S. market. That, German says, was when VW came clean. Dieselgate, as it became known, exploded into one of the biggest corporate scandals in history. Over almost a decade, Volkswagen acknowledged it had embedded defeat devices in 11 million cars, mostly in Europe, but about 600,000 in the U.S. The software detected when emissions tests were being run and pollution controls, components inside the engine that reduce emissions, sometimes at the expense of performance or fuel consumption, worked fine under those circumstances. But outside the lab, the controls were switched off or turned way down, and NOx levels shot up as high as 40 times the legal limit with mind-boggling gall. Volkswagen had even used the software update it was forced to carry out to improve cars' ability to detect when they were being tested. And as it turned out, Volkswagen wasn't the only one evading the law. Less flagrantly, but to similar effect, the vast majority of diesel cars were making a mockery of emissions rules. In the wake of the revelations in the U.S., European governments road-tested other big brands, too. In Germany, testers found all but three 
of 53 models exceeded NOx limits, the worst by a factor of 18. In London, the testing firm Emissions Analytics found 97% of more than 250 diesel models were in violation. A quarter produced NOx at six times the limit. As the data kept coming in, our jaws just kept dropping because it is just so systematic and so widespread, German says. VW isn't even the worst half of the manufacturers, with a few honorable exceptions. Everybody is doing it. And this article goes into further detail about how all of these companies got away with this, got this through the regulators and the regulations for so long because of the weakness of those regulators and regulations. Now, at last, European regulators have begun requiring cars to be tested on the road, not just in the lab. But the real problem, to my mind, is even bigger. It seems clear that the flaws in European nations' enforcement are more fundamental than the particulars of one testing method. The problem is the system itself, which is riddled with weakness and ripe for abuse. Politicians have begun, post-Dieselgate, to tighten it, but it remains a system designed under the gaze and the lobbying pressure of a powerful industry. I learned to my astonishment that some in power knew about the consequences all along. I spoke by phone to Martin Schmied, an official at Germany's Federal Environment Agency. His department, he told me, had been taking cars on the road for 25 years to measure emissions and publishing the results. Year after year, they found diesels producing NOx above the legal maximum, six times in one recent test. I asked him to clarify. Germany's government and anyone who read its public reports has known for decades that automakers were flouting the rules. Schmid responded that as long as emissions went down when the limits were tightened, his department didn't mind that they were many times higher than allowed. We published this data, he said, in principle. This is nothing new. So Germany knew. Perhaps other governments did too. Many of its people, though, did not. I certainly didn't. Nor did the buyers of millions of diesel cars. Nor the hundreds of millions of people who breathe the air they taint, trusting for so long that the companies were following the law and that governments would catch them if they didn't. David King, Tony Blair's scientific advisor, told me he gave his support to the tax changes that would put so many diesel cars onto British roads because he believed they would meet emissions limits. The diesel cheating scandal is in some sense a failure of innovation, yet another symptom of carmakers' desire to stick with what they know with the cars that reliably deliver profits. That caution is surely at the root of why European manufacturers push governments looking to shrink carbon footprints to turn to diesel rather than, for example, hybrids such as those that Honda and Toyota had already put on the roads by the late 1990s. With their vast resources and the marketing muscle to bring consumers along, who knows what Volkswagen and others could have come up with? We have all paid the price for their decision not to try. Haha. Not all of us have paid the price. Well, all of us have paid the price. But the corporations didn't pay the price. The corporations made massive profits by lying and hiding things they knew. In this case, they knew were violations of the standards, violations of the environmental protections and the law. It was more profitable to them to hide that, to continue to pollute, to continue to profit, and when caught, to pay a fine, to have a, a financial um, impact at that time, if and when they were caught. So we've covered big tobacco, we've covered big sugar, big sludge, and then big auto. If you listen to the prior episode of You Can't Be Neutral, we covered covered big plastic but there's more there's a lot more there's only a few more that i have some articles on i'm going to save those articles for the next episode we're going to dive into exxon and big oil and big pharma and big chem same issue 
knowing of harmful impacts of their products, hiding those harmful impacts, obfuscating the scientific studies and results and knowledge coming out of uh, information that would potentially be harmful to their profits. The previous episode, Plastitastrophe, is found at the website You Can't Be Neutral, where you can find all of the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral, and you can check out the website movingtrainradio.com to listen to this podcast and all my other podcasts playing 24-7. And here's Mr. McDonald, the fellow that I opened this episode with, back for a little bit more. Some interesting twist at the end of his, uh, his commentary here. Here is your moment of zin. Thanks for listening. So there's a huge amount of very difficult work that has to be done in using clever forms of communication, artful versions of the truth, in order to advance those goals. There's nothing wrong with that, and that's a very positive procedure. It's a very constructive thing to do if it means that you're increasing the value of the organization, you're saving jobs, you're creating jobs. So there's a very utilitarian argument for a lot of this. Moving away from business for a moment, Every country plays this game. I mean, every country invents its own history, shapes it to forge a national identity that we can be proud of, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that. Countries have done tremendous things by building mythological identities around battles 500 years ago, or what we perceive as some great empire across the sea that our forefathers built. And we carefully erase certain elements of that, We talk so much about the good stuff that the bad stuff is sort of lost in the corners. I think we do need to be honest about our history, but at the same time, I don't think there's anything wrong with encouraging people to take pride in the good aspects of national heritage, national history, for that matter, corporate history. Hmm. Where has that led us in the past?